0: As we open the written word of God, that we would hear your voice, the voice of our risen Lord. You, our Lord, who have called us as the great shepherd of our souls to faith, to repentance, to life in you. So we pray now, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, conform us to the image of the one whom our souls have come to adore. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, uh, this morning to the book of Hebrews. That's where we're going to eventually end up. Uh, Although we're taking a slight break uh, from the Ecclesiastes, we will get back into Ecclesiastes starting up with chapter 8 next week. But I wanted to take just a short break this week to talk about a particular topic, namely the ascension of Christ, and as the title uh, says, his ascension, priesthood, and intercession uh, for us. So the ascension priesthood and intercession of Christ. Uh, And it's appropriate, although it wasn't really planned this way, that it would be for the Lord's table that we would uh, consider this topic. Now, one important uh, reality that we sometimes forget is the present ministry of Christ. We often think about the gospel in terms of the past of what Christ has done, namely in justification, his life, his death on our behalf to atone for our sins, his resurrection, giving confirmation of the Lord's acceptance of his work. And we think also of his future work and the fact that he will return in the glory of the Father with all of the holy angels. He will establish his kingdom on earth. So we think in terms of justification And in the future, ultimately in terms of glorification, but we sometimes forget or don't meditate on his present work for us now. And there are many things he's doing, but one I want to emphasize this morning is his priestly role of intercession for us as the people of God. And that is, again, appropriate as we come to the Lord's table because the Lord's table itself is a sign and a symbol of our ongoing fellowship with Christ as the people of God and as the body of Christ and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit within us as He works in us, persevering faith and hope in the future and the glory uh, to come. Now, I want to... Uh, look at this under three main headings, although to be fair, we might have to forego the last one and I'll just try to mention it uh, because as time went on, the message kept getting longer and longer and uh, it just wasn't gonna happen in one week. But here are the two main headings that I'll try to get to this week with more attention on the second one, namely this, first, that Christ's ascension and his priesthood, looking at that. And then secondly, Christ's priesthood involves sacrifice and intercession. Sacrifice and intercession. And then the third, which uh, may get little more than a mention, is Christ's priesthood and ours. How his priesthood relates and establishes our own priesthood. We are a holy priesthood, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, let's begin with this first topic then to understand Christ's ascension and his high priesthood. And the first point here is that Christ's ascension brings completeness to the Incarnation. Christ's ascension brings completeness to the incarnation. So, when Christ was resurrected from the dead, that affirmed Christ as the accepted sacrifice by the Father. But the full completion of the coming of Christ and the ministry of Christ, taking on flesh and being Redeemer and Savior of His people, finds its fruition in the ascension of Christ. Now, some of you may be asking then, what is the ascension of Christ? Well the ascension of Christ refers to that moment his final leaving of the earth physically right, before the apostles leaving the earth to go and sit at the right hand of the father where he currently is now as we await for his return. Now the reality is is that Jesus likely after his resurrection did make appearances in heaven but these are not the ascension of Christ. He did say to the thief for example today you will be with me uh, in paradise. However, the ascension is not merely Christ's presence in heaven, uh, whatever that may have been in between his resurrection and his final departure from this earth. The ascension is a specific and formal event related to his offices as prophet, priest, and king on our behalf. It is a formal initiation of his present ministry for us that began in his incarnation, finds its fulfillment now, and its ultimate fulfillment Uh, At his return for us at the end of this age And we don't often think of the ascension again We usually focus on the work of Christ in the past And the work that he will do in the future But it is to our great comfort and to our great advantage spiritually To consider who Christ is for us today Now why do we not think of the ascension very often? And well, probably the primary reason for that Or one of them is it's only mentioned a few times in scripture directly in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 51, I'll just read these for you. Uh, Luke mentions it there. He says, And he led him out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them, speaking to the disciples with him. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, we're a bit more familiar with this. This is the, the opening of the book of Acts, also written by Luke. And it's showing the last moments that Christ had with his disciples before he departed to be with the Father. And Luke records this for us And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That is bodily, physically moving from one place, the earth, to another place in heaven. That is on the clouds associated with the glory of God and the presence of God. He will return in the same in clouds as well and in the glory of his father and the holy angels as I mentioned earlier. There's another passage which, by implication, uh, mentions the ascension. That is in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, after he was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels. Seen by angels, most likely a reference to his appearing in heaven as the risen Lord. And then there's one other passage. And this is mentioned by Jesus himself in John 20, chapter 17. You'll remember as he was speaking to Mary, who was amazed at. Uh, his appearance after his death. And he says this to her. He said, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. In other words, it was anticipating that event that is recorded for us in Luke and is recorded for us by Luke in the book of Acts. Of Jesus' return to the Father in the right hand of the Father. Now, although it's only mentioned in a few passages, it is extremely important and encouraging to us. And the reason is is that it is, again, the climactic event that one brought the sending of the Holy Spirit. If you will remember, for 40 days, Jesus walked with his disciples while they were on earth, but the Spirit had not yet come. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus promised his disciples, and he says, You are to wait here until you receive power from on high. That is the event recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit came, they spoke in tongues, and Peter stood up and preached his great sermon and acknowledges this fact of the importance of the ascension in verse 33 when he says this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33... He says, I was going to quote it, but so I don't get it wrong. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. That means the mediatorial work of Christ that was begun in the incarnation, completed in terms of providing atonement in the crucifixion, affirmed in the resurrection, knew its fullest completion when he returned to the right hand of the Father, formally to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, as Peter said, which you now see poured forth. That is the establishment of the new covenant church and the new covenant ministry of Christ. That means then that far beyond the mere mention of the word ascension, all of the promises of God related to Christ, for relating to his present work now, are a direct result of the ascension, of his rising again, uh, going up to be at the right hand of the Father. Let me mention just a few, and this is not exhaustive. What is Christ currently doing? He is currently building his church. He says, I am building my church, he said to Peter, and the gates of Hades will not Prevail against it. He said to the disciples, and at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He says, Therefore, you go into the nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, including also teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded to you. Christ is currently building his church, he is maturing his church. He, as the victorious conqueror, having risen back to the right hand of the Father, it says in Ephesians 4, has given gifts to his church by which the church is strengthened and matured in her witness of Christ. He is ruling his church as head in Ephesians 1.22 and Colossians 1.18. He is head over all things and of the church. He is head. That means he is the source of its life. And it means that he is an authority over his church, ruling his church. He is doing that right now. He is fellowshipping with his people. He promised the disciples upon the coming of the Holy Spirit, that as they obey him and walk in obedience to him, that he comes with the Father and they make their abode in him and they have the most intimate, he does fellowship with us. And again, that's part of what's pictured in the Lord's Supper. He's strengthening his people in trial. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, he gives us as a promise and Paul himself is an example of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Though all abandoned me, he said, the Lord stood with me. And that is the Lord's ministry to his people in trial. We remember Stephen, who looked up into heaven as he was being stoned before he died. And he saw the Lord standing at the right hand of God the Father, knowing that he was strengthening him. And that is where Stephen was headed to be with him. He is interceding for his people, which we'll look at this morning, And he is advocating for his people. So the ascension has massive implications and, and the work of Christ now involves the fullness of our spiritual life and our connection to him by the Spirit. One has said this. Although the ascension is rarely mentioned in explicit terms, the New Testament assumes its central place. The ascension revealed the Messiah's exaltation and triumph, finished his work on earth... Guaranteed his current sovereignty, broke the barrier between heaven and earth, thus pouring out the Spirit, and pledged his return. The ascension fulfills and completes the goal of the incarnation. Why the incarnation, why the provision, the, the taking on, and the permanent union of the Son of God with humanity and with flesh? It is to be for us an eternal mediator, the eternal one who stands in the presence of God For his people. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and this I'm only mentioning briefly, this is uh, just hitting some of the high points. The ministry of Christ, in terms of his incarnation and his ongoing ministry to us, is often spoken of as three different offices. Uh, These are very clear in Scripture, although they were first uh, articulated with any kind of specificity by Calvin. But these three offices are this the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. These are, and we won't go there, these are aspects even of God's creative purpose for Adam and Eve in the garden. They are realities or offices of ministries that God gave to his people after forming the nation of Israel. He sent to them prophets, he established the priesthood, and he established a kingdom. But these offices were never combined into one person as they are with Christ. The prophets who spoke the word of God to God's people had a unique and important role, but it was always incomplete. And there was the anticipation of a final prophet who would come. If you'll remember during the ministry of Jesus, they said, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? In other words, the prophet, they're probably referring to that which was uh, mentioned to Moses, that a prophet will arise after him, a prophet who spoke to God face to face, a prophet who arose at the mop of Mount Sinai to be in God's presence in a unique way to reveal the word of God to God's people, There was never a prophet like that after Moses, but there was one promised to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Not only is he delivering God's word, but he is, in fact, the living word, the living word incarnate. That's the point of the opening words of John. There is the king that would rule over God's people. Of course, God was his king, and the way that they asked for a human king was wrong, and God rebuked them when he gave them Saul. But the idea of them having a king over the nation was something also promised by God in the law. In Deuteronomy, he spoke of the future king that would rule over them. Following Saul, there was David, who was the epitome of the kings of Israel. He was a righteous king. He was a king who was a man after God's own heart, though he was a sinner who failed. But there was a promise to David saying, another king will come. But his kingdom will be distinct from all of the other kingdoms, though he will come from your loins, because he will rule over a kingdom that endures forever. He will be an eternal king. That's where we get the idea of the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic king which is what, again, we see the people anticipating in the Gospels. Jesus is the fulfillment of that office. He not only is the living word of God who spoke the words of God as God, he is the king that was promised, who rules over God's people. All authority has been given to him, again, in heaven and in earth. But there is also the office of the priest. And the priest, in a very general sense, could be described as the one who represented God to the people and the people to God. They had a representative role. And the priesthood, as we even have been reading in the book of Hebrews, was established by God so that the people might have a renewed and continual fellowship with him. But there was in that Levitical priesthood always a sense of incompleteness to it because of the fallenness of man, which we'll consider later. But Christ comes as the perfect high priest, the one who has no weakness and no incompleteness to his ministry. And so Christ's ascension then affirms this permanent priesthood of Christ. Now, the fullest explanation of this priestly ministry of Christ is given in the book of Hebrews. So that's maybe where you are. If not, then you can turn there. We'll spend most of our time there. And it is interesting, in the book of Hebrews, which is essentially an extended sermon or a collection of sermons on the ministry of Christ as the high priest of his people. The ministry of Christ is the high priest. It's mentioned in nearly every chapter. Him as our high priest. But he begins, and really, even in the first couple of verses, gives implication of those three offices. And God, in latter times, spoke to us in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us how? In his son, that's the ministry of prophet he spoke the words of God. He was, in fact, the final revelation of God. In these last days, He spoken to us in a son, or whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent Name than they have. So, what's interesting here is that he begins this, what will eventually be an explanation of the high priesthood of Christ, both on earth but primarily now in heaven. He begins not by mentioning his priesthood, although describing it, and he made purification for sins and he's in the presence of God at his right hand, but by identifying his divine nature as the Son. His divine nature as the Son, through whom he created all things, through whom he upholds all things by the word of his power, identifying him here as the eternal Son, who is creator, who is the radiance of God's glory, who is sovereign, and who is redeemer, who is now in God's presence. And then in chapter 2, from verses 5 down through 18, he essentially explains this. That this Son, who has inherited through whom all things came into being, who created and sustains the world, who made purification for sins, is the one who took on the full experience of humanity. And indeed, he had to do that in order to provide that purification and to ultimately accomplish God's purpose in the creation of man. And interestingly, in verses 5 through 6 then, quoting from Psalm 8, He identifies what God's original purpose for man was. It was to reflect God's glory here and ultimately to rule. Look at verse 8 For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That is to man. And then he goes on to explain that Christ fully took on that humanity to fulfill God's original purpose for humanity that men failed in because of sin. Whereas men failed. Christ will not fail. And not only is he in fulfillment of God's original purpose for man to live in fellowship with him and to rule over creation, he is a fulfillment of that original purpose and yet in many ways infinitely more because he is the son. He rules not merely over earth, but he rules over all of creation and all men. And he is the one then as the eternal son who took on the fullness of humanity, also the one who provided salvation. And he says in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And so therefore as the eternal son as the eternal Son, who take on the full experience of humanity, he also took on the role of and the office of high priest to be the mediator for his people, and far exceeded anything that preceded him. In verse three, or chapter three, verse one. Jesus is called the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And in chapter 6, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confession. He is the son who has obtained for himself a people, a people whom he has redeemed from humanity, a humanity that he took on himself so that he might bring them forever into the presence of God. That is the glory of the work of Christ. It was... Dimly anticipated in the Old Testament and now fully realized with the coming of Christ. He says in verse 5 of chapter 8, I'm just going to mention this, that speaking of the Old Testament establishment of the temple and the law and so forth. He says, These served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God you know, to make a tabernacle exactly as as it was said. But now that Christ has come, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He is the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. He came then to bring a fullness and a completeness to God's intention for humanity and God's intention in redeeming a portion of fallen humanity back to himself. That's the first point, just generally. Secondly, What does Christ's priesthood then involve? It involves sacrifice and intercession. Sacrifice and intercession. The role of high priest, as I said, on earth was to represent God to the people and the people to God. But there was an anticipation of something even more in this one who was to come, this Messiah who was to come, this Davidic king who was to come. This is anticipated most clearly in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Don't turn there. I can just read it. You're familiar. He says this. I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors. And here it is. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That is the ministry of the priest. And yet what is unique about This one anticipated is that he himself is the sacrifice that endures the sin of his people. He himself is the one who forever lives to make intercession for those he came to redeem, for the transgressors. And so, this was the anticipation, or should have been, of the people of God and what he would provide for them in a Savior. But if we were to boil down the ministry of the high priest, it would come down to these two primary aspects. That is sacrifice and prayer, or sacrifice and intercession. Those are the primary categories of the priest, of what they did. They offered sacrifice to God, and they interceded for the people of God. There is a third category that uh, is the fruit of that sacrifice and intercession, and that is they also blessed the people of God. They were a blessing. You can remember the Arianic blessing. May the Lord keep you, make his face to shine upon you. But primarily, the essence of the ministry was that they offered sacrifice and that they interceded for the people of God. Let me just consider this briefly. First of all, Christ's priestly sacrifice. And I'm going to have to go through this broadly just for the sake of time. We're not going to make this a two-parter. So let me just mention this. Christ's priestly role as sacrifice, and this is what we are more familiar with, and even as we've been reading through Hebrews, you may have picked up on the old covenant ministry of the Day of Atonement by the high priest, in which the sins of the people of God were atoned for, and God was able then to maintain His covenant faithfulness to them, The Day of Atonement was established in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16. I just mentioned a couple of parts there, so you get the big idea. Some of you are familiar, some of you may not be. In Leviticus 16, God establishes what is, again, known as the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. It was a day, once a year, where God established that the high priest, through the line of Aaron would offer sacrifices for the people and enter into the Holy of Holies, make atonement for the sins of the people that he might continue his covenant with them. This happened only one time of year and it was the only time of year that anyone was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And what is the Holy of Holies? Just to give you a picture of the tabernacle, which was replicated in a more grand form in the temple. But in the tabernacle, there was a fence... There was a gate, essentially, that separated the tabernacle area from the people at large. As you entered into this fenced area, you had what was known as the courtyard, and then you moved towards the tabernacle. When you went inside the tabernacle, there was what was called the holy place. That's where there was the bread of the showbread. That was where there was the candle and the light. And the priests went in there all the time. Uh, putting on new bread, keeping the oil and the candles and so on and so forth. But there was then, behind in the holy place, there was another thick curtain. And on the other side of that, it was called the Most Holy Place. And in the Most Holy Place, there was the Ark of the Covenant that had the cherubim and the lid. The lid was the mercy seat. And it was the place that only one time a year were the people of God allowed into the presence of God in that way. And it was for the high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. That is what's pictured on the Day of Atonement. It was the most holy place. It was the place where God's presence uniquely dwelled. And it was a place that the people did not have free access to. And frankly, it was not even a place that the high priest had free access to on that day, for if he came in an unworthy manner, he himself would be put to death. Now, part of the ceremony of this day of atonement involved two goats, the sacrifice of two goats. Now, there were the sacrifices of a bull that were for Aaron and his sons, So it was a sin sacrifice for them that enabled them to have the ceremonial cleanliness to go into the presence of God, even to offer the sacrifice. But the particular sacrifices or sacrifice that related to the ministry, his ministry to the people of Israel uh, was pictured in two goats, two goats. Uh, In verse nine, it says this of Leviticus 16, and Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot. Well, so let me back up. There were two goats, two lots were, 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 or lots were thrown to identify one goat that would be a sin sacrifice and one goat that would be what's called a scapegoat. Uh, and so that's what's going on. So then Aaron shall, uh, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness. He then says later, he talks about, in verse 15, he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring the blood inside the veil, that is, inside the Holy of Holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, and he shall make atonement uh, for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel because of their transgressions and he goes on and then he says in verse 20 and when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meaning and the altar he shall offer the live goat and then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to their sins and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it into the wilderness by the hand of of the man who stands in readiness. Well, what's going on there? There is a picture. There is a picture of two aspects of our redemption and the atonement that God provided. There is a picture of what we've looked at in the past, of propitiation. That was the goat that was offered as a sin offering. And that means God's wrath, God's stored up anger against the sins of his people was placed on this goat who was the sin offering. By his death, he atones, For the sins of the people. What about this odd second goat in which he confessed the sins of the people and send it off into the wilderness? Uh, Most simply stated is this: it pictures the idea of what is known as expiation, and that is the removal of the presence of God's sin from his people. And so this second goat pictured that not only has God atoned for the sin, he has removed this sin from the presence of his people, and he is propitious towards them. He is gracious toward them. He can maintain his covenant to them. And so that is the idea. Both of these are what were accomplished in the person of Christ. As we read earlier in the book of Hebrews, this was done year after year, but never was there the complete sacrifice, which is why it had to be repeated. He says, in fact, there is the reminder of sins year by year. So this was the glory of Christ. This is the point of his priesthood that he came not merely as one to offer a sacrifice but for himself to be that sacrifice. And not only was he the sacrifice of a man, not even a righteous man, but again, it was the sacrifice of the Son. The Son through whom he has finally spoken to his people. The Son through whom he created the world the Son through whom he upholds all things, the Son through whom all of his glory and the radiance of his glory is manifest, it was the Son who was in human flesh who made the sacrifice for sin. And therefore, it had a completeness to it. He says, for example, we've again read this, let me remind you, that he has been manifest in verse 26 of Hebrews 9, By the sacrifice of himself to put away sin. To put away sin once and for all. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many. We read it this morning. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 of chapter 10, "For by one offering he was perfected He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." Verse 18. "Now where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin." You get the point? The sacrifice of Christ was a completed sacrifice. It was directly attached to his ministry, his priesthood. And it was a sacrifice that in every way completely satisfied the righteousness of God and his required of humanity, both in our sin and ultimately in our, his requirement of us for obedience. And so he is our high priest by being the perfect and complete sacrifice for us. Now, what does that mean? It means that there's no longer any offering of sin and that means that we who come to Christ can have a clean conscience for our sin when we confess it. It means what we sing in that song that we so often love. Tell me if these words are familiar. I know they are. It means because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen land. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. What is that song singing about? It's singing about the high priestly ministry of Christ. And this is a high priestly ministry of Christ that was ratified, that was confirmed, that finds its fullness in his ascension back to the presence of the Father, where he always remains before the Father as our righteousness as the satisfaction for our sin. Now, why is that important outside of the theology of it? Well, let me ask you this, as we consider the high priestly ministry of Christ, if that sounds a little bit too distant. For the soul that knows the reality of indwelling sin, remaining sin in us, who experiences every day the burden of sin in your life, who experiences the disappointment of failure, the frustration of ongoing battling with sin, who knows the pain and the conviction of failing the Lord yet again and again and again, sometimes in the same area, who feel within us the frustration of not being what we want to be and what we know that we should be. This is a precious truth. Our sins are atoned for. We come to God not in order to, to bring to him something that will be sincere enough to make him accept us, we bring to him merely our broken hearts and contrite spirits to receive from him the benefits of the completed work of Christ. He is a sacrifice for our sin. That can remain merely theological only to those who don't know what it's like daily to live with the burden of sin. To those of us who do know that, then this is the precious truth Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. There is no penance. There is no amount, time period where we do good enough that God will accept us. There is no grading of our sincerity in terms of how long we refrain from sin again. There is every time we go and we look to Christ, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. There's a second part of his ministry and this is actually what I wanna emphasize the most. It is not merely, though, what he did in the past. It's not merely, though, that our sins are forgiven in the past. It is that because he ascended to the right hand of the Father, because he holds the office of priesthood permanently, because he is now experiencing and extending the fullness of that office to his people in his ongoing prayer and intercession for us, that we have the daily confidence to approach God and to receive mercy. Now, the intercession of Christ is, again, as I mentioned earlier, is something that we're less familiar with. But it is what maintains our ongoing relationship with God. One has said this, The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. That's the glorious truth. And what is intercession? Intercession is most basically this. One person going on behalf of another representing another. That's the, the basic idea of intercession. It contains also the concept of mediator and it is related directly to the reality of prayer. Moses interceded for Israel when they sinned with the golden calf. How? He prayed to God. He beseeched God on their behalf. The priest interceded for the people of Israel. How? By prayer that God would be merciful toward their sin and on it goes. And Christ intercedes for his people as high priest. Now, he demonstrated this ministry on earth, this ministry of intercession related to his priesthood. We have a precious example of that, even of the personal nature of it. If you will remember with Peter in Luke chapter 22, and he said to Peter, do you remember? Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And so certain is his prayer that he always knew he was heard by the Father on earth, that he said, and when, not if, you have returned, strengthen your brethren. The greatest example of this high priestly ministry was in John 17, which is the true Lord's Prayer, as we often say, in which he interceded for his people just before he was to be handed over and to go to the cross to provide atonement. And while that's worthy to spend time on on its own, let me just summarize it for this. In John 17, Jesus prays his high priest specifically for his elect, beginning with the disciples and then extending to all who believe on him through their ministry, through the gospel. He prays that God would, the Father would preserve them, would sanctify them, would unify them and ultimately glorify them, which are the same burdens of his heart now. He prays that God would preserve us that God would unify us, that God ultimately would glorify us. And he prays as the perfect son of God and it's a prayer that's always heard and will be answered. However, the most significant ministry of Christ in terms of his intercession, in terms of his prayer for us, is not what he did on earth, but is what he's doing for us right now, this very moment. If you belong to Christ, Christ is this very moment praying on your behalf, interceding for you on your behalf before the Father. Not as a doctrine or theological idea. He is physically present at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you. What? What is he praying? Praying that God would preserve you. Praying that God would sanctify you. Praying that God would let you know the unity with him and his people. And praying that God ultimately would bring you to glorification. It is a prayer that is certain. This is gloriously mentioned, and before we jump to a passage in Hebrews, in Romans chapter 8. And here, it is revealed as a Trinitarian work. A Trinitarian work, this work of intercession, is according to the eternal will of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In verse 26 of Romans 8, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then he says in verse 34, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God doing what? Who intercedes for us. And isn't it interesting when he talks about the one who is interceding for us, the spirit interceding for us, Christ interceding for us, that it comes in the midst of that great promise of the very things Christ prayed for. He whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom He predestined, He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. That's what Christ prayed for. That's what God is doing now through the work of the Spirit and the Son. And the most glorious truth of this is that it is a work that is guaranteed in its completion, not only because of the work of Christ, but He encourages us because of the heart of the Father. Right after he says that Christ intercedes for us, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He ends, For I am convinced in verse 38 that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He intercedes for us, Beloved, because he loves us. He intercedes for us, not with the heart of a begrudging savior, but the heart of God who has, at greatest cost to himself, purchased for him a people who will know his love and respond to him with worship and praise and adoration for all of eternity and will be faithful to him. This is the heart of God. It is not that Christ is before God interceding with God with stiff arms like this and Jesus going, please, please, please forgive them. It was the plan of the Father from all eternity to send the Son to fulfill the role of mediator and redeemer so that we might be brought in to the fullness of the expression of his love for us in Christ Jesus. The work of Christ was the Father's plan and the Son and the Spirit's joyful agreement before the world was. We are his elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. But now as we come into the table, I want to look at just one other passage. In Hebrews chapter 7. And I'll, as usual, have to go quicker than I wanted. But let's turn there. passage you're familiar with. Beginning in verse 23 through 28. As the writer of Hebrews has been unfolding this glorious ministry of Christ, the Son who is incarnate to be our mediator and high priest. After explaining in more detail how the ministry of Christ reflects the ministry of Melchizedek, who appears mysteriously in the book of Genesis for a while and then goes out of the scene, but Christ, after explaining how he models that ministry, that priesthood of Melchizedek, And the fact that it is outside of the Levitical priesthood, it's something that he received, as he'll say later, by oath from God. It is something that he holds permanently. And it is even reflected in a sense by the fact that even Melchizedek, there's no genealogy given from where he came from or where he went. And so it is with the eternal Son of God, whose God is, whose Father is God in terms of his flesh primarily. And eternally in terms of his relationship. But he says this in verse 23. The former priest, as he continues to extol this ministry of Christ, on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints many high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which comes after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Note briefly, the insufficiency of the little Levitical priesthood. There were great numbers of priests, thousands and tens of thousands throughout the years, but every one of them was under the condemnation, was under the curse, and were prevented by death from continuing. The best that they could offer is a weak ministry that even in itself, in its best form, would last only temporarily and was beset with the reality of remaining sin in them. These were never meant to be the final example. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 27... These priests needed daily to offer up sacrifices for their own sin. And he makes that point by showing how Christ is distinct because he didn't have to do that. Even Aaron, with the great privilege of being able to enter into the Holy of Holies first, had to cleanse himself from his own sin, even to be able to make the sacrifice for the sins of his people. That's how deep our sin goes. It shows, by the way, just as a footnote, how hopeless it is for salvation to come from man. Even the best of men have their own sin that needs atonement. If God did not provide another, then there would be no hope. No hope at all. But he did provide another. And so against the weakness of the Levitical priesthood, he marks out the glory of Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. It is a permanent priesthood and even though he comes as a man he is not from men he's not from men this is why he can stand out distinct of the weakness of all who came before him That's the point of why the writer of Hebrews established at the beginning that the high priest I'm speaking of is not a high priest who's merely called out from among man, but he is a high priest who is determined by God before the foundation of the world, who is the Son who took on humanity, distinct from the rest of mankind, though fully embracing the reality of humanity. And because he is the Son, he is able to hold his priesthood Permanently. And this is, again, the fullness of the purpose, or part of the fullness of the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus Christ came as a man. He had to because he had to be made like his brethren. He suffered as a man. He had to because he had to suffer for the sin of humanity. He rose as a man from the earth to the presence of the Father to represent man in the presence of the Father. And yet he did this ministry uniquely as the eternal Son of God. And he had to be that too. Imagine, only God, only one who possessed the nature of God could hold the priesthood permanently and intercede for his people. I forget conversations. I and mean, this may not be too surprising, but I can forget conversations or something said, you know, five minutes ago, five seconds ago sometimes. And I certainly can't keep multiple conversations in my head at a time. That's always what amazes me about uh, Trish and just God's design of women. She can multitask. I can't. I can do one thing at a time. One, just this little task and then this little task. Don't confuse me outside of that. Could you imagine Christ, any man who rises to the presence of God to be intercessor for us, who hears simultaneously the prayers of millions of his own and intercedes for every one of them before God? This requires one who has a divine nature, one who is able to represent man and yet able to do so with the divine capacities of the Godhead. One said this, Therefore, in order to be the perfect high priest who intercedes for us, he must be God as well as man. He must be one who in his divine nature can both know all things and bring them into the presence of the Father. Yet because he became and continues to be man, he has the right to represent us before God, and he can express his petitions from the viewpoint of a sympathetic high priest who understands by experience what we go through. He's greater too, as well as our intercessor, because he's not beset with the weakness and the hindrance of sin, verse 25, or actually verse 27, actually verse 26, it was fitting for him, we'll get there, you get there, we're in the right place here. Verse 26, he says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest who, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And it's a holiness that he has within himself. His intercession is in no way marred or hindered or limited by sin or any perfection that would ever threaten or weaken his standing before God interceding for us. He does so with perfect holiness, and he does it that his own... Might have access to the Father through Him. This is a glorious testimony of the innocence and the perfection of Christ. He said earlier that He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And here is the thing: yet without sin, by His own right as the sinless and eternal Son of God. He came into the possession of humanity, wrapped or included in His divine... Or He came in the full divinity and took on the added experience of humanity. So He came into the world without sin, with the same nature of divine holiness as God Himself, and He maintained that holiness through His humanity throughout life, that He could be that wholly separated one, to stand in the presence of God for us. And therefore, he supersedes the Mosaic law. Verse 28, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law, here it is, a son made perfect forever. Now, why is that important? And this is what I want to say leading into. That might all just seem, again, a bit detached. Well, again, let me quote the words of a song that we sing Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect priest, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. What is the joy that these original readers would have heard who were asked to give up everything to remain faithful to Christ? It is that they are not doing this alone they have one who intercedes for them one who guarantees the promises one who is not like the system that they're tempted to go back for to which is failing which is temporary which is weak but they have the opportunity to come to one who will never fail who is holy and exalted above sinners who is able to save forever those who come to him and it's extremely personal it's extremely personal it means that Christ forever enfolds us into the presence and the life of God through our union with him. In the Old Testament, when Aaron went in before the Holy of Holies, he had over his heart all the names of the sons of Israel. Exodus twenty-eight, twenty-nine: Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. As Aaron carried the names of the sons of Israel over his heart, Christ carries his own people in his heart before God eternally. The song says again My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He carries you, sinner redeemed sinner, personally into the presence of God to intercede for you. He carries you into the holy of holies to enjoy God's presence in him. In 924, he entered a holy place made not with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The end of chapter 6. Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And because of that, he says, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters within the veil. Where we did not have access to, Christ has granted us access. One said this, we enjoy the benefits of the Father's love and presence as Jesus does in heaven because we are united to Jesus. If Jesus were to leave heaven, then the pledge of our salvation would be removed. If Jesus is not in the presence on our behalf, then we are not in God's presence. Our presence before God is Christ's presence before God for us. It means then that our sins are forever removed. This is a great encouragement. Listen to how one describes this in terms of the heart of God. Uh, this quote should be up. It says, we, tend, we all tend to have some small pocket of life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches us. We say that we are totally forgiven, and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven, pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recover. To the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25 means that God's forgiven, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our soul." Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated, more than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost, and he saves us to the uttermost, because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. That's the ministry of Christ priesthood. And it's great assurance. Are some of you struggling with the assurance of salvation? I know that you are. I have myself at times in life. There's no greater assurance than to know that Christ appears in the presence of God for us. The soul that struggles with assurance, who fears rejection at every time you fail, should know that he who purchased our soul and who satisfied God's, God's righteousness is for us and he lives in the presence of God for us. Again, the song says one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. If you think you can sin your way out of God's grace, then consider this. The father could no more reject those who truly belong to Christ than he could reject Christ himself as mediator. Our security in Christ is as sure as the holiness of Christ himself. It's as certain for God's love, God's love for his son. God could no more remove his love from his people than he could cease to love Christ as his son. Do you see how bound our lives are to Christ? When we think of him as our high priest and in his presence, it's because we are bound to him. Christ, we could no, lever, no more lose our place in heaven in Christ than Christ himself could be kicked out of heaven, the eternal Son of God. That is the security of our salvation. That is the assurance that we have. And why is that helpful? Because again, nothing is a greater threat to our soul than our own sin. And Satan knows exactly how to destroy our confidence in Christ. That's why the song says as well, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. Can you finish it? Who made an end to all of my sin? Knowing the priesthood of Christ silences the accusations of our adversary, the devil. And this provides not only comfort in sin, but it provides comfort in the forgiveness of sin and the motivation to hate sin all the more and to live consistent with the one who has redeemed us, with whom our lives are united. And when we come to God as our intercessor, we don't come to Christ, though he's holy and innocent and undefiled and separated from sinners. We don't come as one who is distant from us, who cannot relate to the suffering. But his incarnation as well had the purpose that he might overcome the temptations of suffering, overcome the temptations of sin, overcome the things that so often destroy us, so that he could not only redeem us, but so that he could have a sympathetic sovereignty in doing so. That's the glory of chapter four. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. We have a great, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And so what are we to do about that? He says, we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He did this as one who even while he was on earth offered up prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety, his holiness, his godliness, his purity, his without sinness. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being destined by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is not a distant, cold, unfeeling, merciless. He is one whose love for us is forever secured by his atoning work, by his very incarnation, by his very atoning death, by his resurrection, by his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, by ascending of the Spirit, by his presently now making intercession for us, keeping us, holding us, our life being hidden in him before God forever. Forever. This is the high priestly ministry of Christ let me end with this one quote and then we'll come into the Lord's table Christ's intercession uh, intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is his interceding for us reflects his heart the same heart that carried him through life and down into death on behalf of his people is the heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his father to always welcome us The Father's own deepest delight, we could add by the Father's own sovereign design, is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. Indeed, even through the Son, to extend to us His own love for the Son forever. Let's pray, and then we'll take the Lord's table. Father, thank You for this, Your Word, this promise. And even as we symbolize this in the the elements of that represent the blood and the body of Christ, our Savior. Help us to find encouragement and renewed strength that you who died for us currently lives for us. You who lives for us and preserves us are returning, is returning for us. May we have great comfort and joy in this. We pray this in your name, Jesus, amen.